Good morning. If you are, thank you. Gus said good morning back. That was nice. If you are new or visiting, um, hello, my name's Laura. You're so welcome with us. We have just been through a series on prayer. We're just sort of finishing it up today. We've been on quite the journey together. We've been looking at prayer structure, God's will, human free will, the free will of angelic beings, spiritual warfare, declarative prayer, and here we are today. And today I want to talk about waiting. Now, there is so much that could be said, and I will not be able to say it all. I will just share what God has put on my heart for today, because that is that is what I have. And I know that waiting is hard. I know from experience that waiting on God can feel less like a walk in the park and more like sitting on hot coals. I don't like it. It's not enjoyable. Now, no one enjoys waiting, I don't think. But I do think I am an especially impatient person. And I know this because basically every single character flaw I have, I can trace back to my impatience. I've developed strategies to avoid waiting at all costs. I know the right time to show up for the right things. I know what time to tell my friends to meet me for certain things so that they're not late for me. I bring a book with me everywhere so that if I do have to wait on someone or something, I'm not waiting, I'm reading. I, uh, before COVID, I had my Glasgow airport walkthrough down to a fine art. Um, I call it the walkthrough because basically the goal is to never stop walking. So to get out of the car and just walk your way onto the plane, like to have effectively timed it so precisely so that you don't need to stop as you go through the necessary checks, you know, um, the security queue shuffle that you have to do, you know, like boots off, belt off, bag out, laptop out of its case, liquids in your hand, all without stopping. To stop is to fail. Now, dear knows what it's like going through the airport now. They're going to have scuppered all my plans because you probably have to do 14 tests on your way through or something. I don't know what it's like, but I don't like to wait ever in life. And yet I find myself here in big ways and in small ways. I am living here and I feel a little bit like I'm in a waiting room waiting for my number to be called. I don't know what number I am though. And also I'm sitting on hot coals. It is uncomfortable. Now, chances are you might be waiting on God for something, or you have been in that space before, or you will be in that space in the not-too-distant future, because waiting is inevitable. Because although Jesus promised us radical things when it comes to prayer and our prayer lives, he did not promise immediacy. He said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father is glorified. If two of you agree about anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. He taught of and lived a life filled with answered prayer. So we should expect great things. We should expect to live similar sorts of lives. But he also taught his disciples, his closest friends, a story which in Luke's gospel has a mission statement. He taught them the story of the persistent widow so that they would always pray and never give up. They were to expect answers to their prayer, but they were also taught and told to be persistent in prayer. And that was because there would be waiting that time would come. So what is your waiting style, I wonder? I think I'm a little bit of a mix of the multitasker and the bear. Now, the multitasker, they will do whatever they can within their part to make the waiting feel productive. You know, you're in the line for Costco, but you're also reading your Kindle, you're also tweeting, you're also dealing with your emails, doing a bit of life admin, updating your phone contract, etc., etc. That's the multitasker. Um, the bear just wants to hibernate through it. Uh, would just like to sleep until it is done. Maybe you're one of those, maybe you're a mix of those. Maybe you're the kid on the car journey. Um, they just need incessantly distracted while they're waiting and just occasionally they'll, they'll shout to the heavens, are we there yet? You might be the kid on a car journey. Um, you might be the kettle 
just like simmering on a slow boil, you know, getting like hotter and hotter and hotter, more angry and more angry until you reach boiling point. Kettles are the sort of people who shout at traffic lights. Um, maybe you're the hovercraft, you know, just sort of always hovering, that person in the car park who's just like driving around, floating, circling, ready to pounce, can never rest, and they're waiting. Having to wait for anything in life can bring out the worst in us. Having to wait on God for something can be a completely different ballgame entirely. I passed an ATM this week on Dumbarton Road which said, free to use, no cash available. And I thought, wow, that's a little bit like what it feels like waiting on God in prayer. It feels like, okay, I know you can hear me. I'm praying. I know that you can hear me. I know that I can access the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus. That's amazing. Why aren't you giving me anything? Why aren't you dispensing what I want from you? Why can't I seem to get any of my answers? I know you're there. I know you can hear me, but, but I'm not seeing anything happen. But it's not like that. Because the truth is, whether we feel it or not, when we wait on God in prayer, there is treasure for us in the season where it feels like answers are not being dispensed. Waiting on God, and especially when we have to wait beyond our wall, beyond the point at which we thought the waiting would be over, beyond the point at which we feel like we can't wait any longer, waiting in that space is the most, it's like going into the most intense and incredible prayer space that you never wanted to go into. We need to learn to wait because if we that's if we wait that's what we get that's where we are if we can't wait it's like anything in life we do what we can control and we walk away from what we can't so this queue is too long I'm going to try this one that's what I can control or all of these queues are too long I'm going to give up but we can't do that with God because we can't control God and so sadly very often, for the lure of a shiny thing or for a very legitimate ache of the heart, people walk away because they can't control God, even though he is so much better than anything we could be waiting on from him on this earth. And we have to take all that we've learned about prayer into the days to come. As we do that, as we take all of these things we've learned, we can't afford to walk away when we have to wait because we are contending, we are praying for our futures, for our families, for our cities. It's too important. It's too big. And we know the battle ends when we stop praying or when the prayer is answered. So although it might feel like we've just been through a wrestling match, we might feel tired, we keep waiting, we keep praying because we can't control the winds, but we can control how we wait in the meantime. We're going to go through scripture today just for two warnings and two positive examples, although there's good things obviously in all four. And the first stop I want to take is I want to go back to Abraham and Sarah. Now, you'll need to have grace for me because I will float between their new names and their old names, and I can only apologize. But um, Sarai is introduced in Genesis chapter 11, and it says, Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. So this is her starting point in the story. We're told her name, and then we're told that she is childless. She had no children in a culture where that would have been incredibly significant for her. And then she has to leave everything that she did have as they follow God together. Because God says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. For the sake of a promise directly connected to what she lacks. Because he promises, I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And they go, and they worship as they go. As you read through the story, Abram builds altars where they end up, where they camp, where they pitch their tents, and it says that he called upon the name of the Lord there, meaning that they worshiped as they went. But in chapter 15, when God appears once again to Abram in a vision, we see that as they go and as they worship, the feeling of lack, what they lacked, they hadn't forgotten it. 
There, there had been a certain amount of fear and grief perhaps carried with them because Abram says to God, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. They know and feel the reality of what God has not done yet, as we do too in those moments in our lives. And God makes a covenant promise to Abram at this point. It says, then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is in your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, before this, God had spoken about this promise. He has said, I'll make you into a great nation. Your offspring are going to be like the dust of the earth. But at this point, it's like the promise grows skin and bones. And in those moments where maybe a word from God is, is repeated or it's more vivid or it's more specific, it gets even harder. The, the heart wrestle between the harsh reality of what we know and the promise gets even harder. And in chapter 16, we see what can happen in this place because it says, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That is their reality. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai had said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. We see here that there's a lesson that when we wait, as we wait, we need to resist seizing control. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. We know it. You can read it in Proverbs. The pain, the hurt of waiting beyond our wall is real. It hurts. And Sarah, in her hurt, believes that she understands what God is doing or not doing. And so she issues a command of her own, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, there is a big difference between contending in prayer, between actively waiting, partnering with God in prayer, pushing every door, and scrambling out of fear or grief. I understand the very real lure to compromise and to build an Ishmael. If you're praying for something and it has been years, if you just feel like it's been years or it has been years, there are going to be moments in your life when your brain and your heart are going to conspire together against you and they're going to say, scramble, make do what's here, pick it up, have it, do whatever you need to do. Build an Ishmael. And there's going to be times too when you won't even have to feel tempted to build an Ishmael because there's going to be Ishmaels popping up all over. And what you're going to have to do is actually say no when a sort of version of your dream is dangled right in front of your face, or at least that's what it feels like. It's hard not to take what you can see when you're waiting on something that you can't see. But I'm definitely not blaming, I'm not heaping blame on Sarah here because we need to not be a Sarah to an Abraham in this moment. We also need to not be an Abraham to a Sarah in this moment because she makes a plan B, but Abram agrees. And God has appeared to him multiple times, spoken to him in visions and dreams, direct revelation, and he agrees. Now she goes off one way and she thinks, okay, this promise isn't for me, so we'll make an alternative plan. But for Abraham, it's like a subtle thing. He he believes, okay, God can't do the thing he said he's going to do with my circumstances as they are, so I'll help him. And that's more often the space I find myself in is that subtle shift of like, God definitely can't do it with the things that I have, with the way that things are, so maybe I'll just do something a little bit different. I'll try something else. Sarah needed Abraham to say, no, wait. God is able to do what he said he's going to do. There's a lesson here for us about accountability. If you are contending for an Isaac in your life, surround yourself with people, probably just a close circle, 
of people who will contend with you and stand with you, who maybe aren't personally carrying the, the fear and the grief that can come in that waiting process, so then are able to say to you, no, don't do that. Keep waiting. Hold on. God's able to do what he said he's going to do. And the right people around you will also help you see past your promise or your prayer to see the whole truth. Because although we need to pray boldly, we need to pray persistently, we need to never give up, we also can't get so lost in our prayer requests that then we view God in light of them rather than them in light of God. Because Sarai here looks at her situation and she sees God in light of that. She says, I'm childless. The Lord has prevented me from having children. So here's my plan. Rather than in our lives, maybe, okay, God has said something. God doesn't go back on his word. This is my reality. This is, I'm not seeing this yet, but there's got to be hope still. It hasn't happened yet, but it's got to happen because he doesn't go back on his word. If you're at a crossroads like that, if you face one, I would just implore you to keep waiting. But there's a warning too here because I've learned the hard way that just because you say no to an Ishmael doesn't mean you're going to get a direct exchange of your Isaac. It's not like, okay, yeah, well done. Now here's your thing. Um, although God is kind, God rewards his people. God, uh, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Our obedience matters. It could be like that, but we're also not guaranteed that. You might need to wait on the other side of it too. In chapter 17, it says, when Abram was 99, it's 13 years later, Ishmael is 13, God gets back in touch about the son Abraham will have with Sarah this time. He says, I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. You may need to keep waiting beyond that point, but hopefully you will be spared greater pain and mess because I think Sarah probably thought that having a child through Hagar would lessen her pain, but the moment Hagar is pregnant, it's just brokenness and pain result. Hagar despises Sarah. Sarah blames Abram. Abram permits evil against Hagar. Hagar runs away, and it's only salvageable because of the direct intervention of the God who Hagar comes to call the God who sees me. Now, some good news is that if waiting got hard and you compromised or you're tempted to, there is incredible grace for you. There's grace for you because there are natural consequences for Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar. That is painful. It is messy. But Sarah is brought into the promise. And although the covenant promise is for Isaac, Ishmael is blessed because Abraham asks God to bless him. And he does. There's grace there in that story. And the other bit of good news is that although you might need to wait for what feels like forever, when it is God's appointed time, it is time. They are told three times then in their story, this is going to happen. Um, you're going to have a son by this time next year. Three times. And it happens. So pay attention to repeated words. Pay attention to timing words. Listen and pray. Because when it's God's appointed time, it is time. But what do we do when God's appointed time and our appointed time don't match we have a, a warning from the life of King Saul. So in 1 Samuel 13, I'm going to jump to there um, as you follow along. In 1 Samuel, the context is that Saul is picking his army, and it says Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gabeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Then his son Jonathan attacks the Philistines, and then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all of Israel hears of Saul's victory. He is proud, he is gloating, and then it says the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Meanwhile, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In short, they have a much bigger army. 
Then when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. They hide and they scatter rather than gather to him. Sarah reacts wrongly to what she does not see in front of her. She does not see a child. She reacts wrongly to that. Saul reacts wrongly to what he does see. Because what he sees is the very opposite of what he wants to see, what he needs to see in that moment. And we know in those moments that if the waiting feels like it couldn't be further off, if our promise feels like it couldn't be further, because actually we're looking at everything that we see and we're seeing the opposite of what we need God to do. So what does Saul do in that moment? He says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Because under Levitical law, only the priest could do that offering. Saul should not have done it. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, when I saw that the men were scattering, that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to do the offering. He panics. He sees people scattering. He sees the army assembling. Samuel doesn't come on time. Do we know that waiting a set time is one thing? Waiting beyond that set time is another thing entirely? You're in a queue at a theme park for a ride. It says it's a 15-minute wait. You're like, okay, I can do 15 minutes. You do 15 minutes. You turn a corner. There's another maze and another queue, and you feel betrayed. It is one thing to wait for a set time, but when things feel late and the pressure is mounting, it is harder to wait. It's harder to keep waiting. Saul waited seven days. It's not a story of how Saul didn't wait. He waited seven days. But then Samuel didn't come at the set time, and he says, I felt compelled to do the offering. He panicked. If you have to wait beyond your wall, the simple lesson from Saul is don't freak out. Don't freak out, because his panic takes him off peace. He, in a moment, he has disobeyed God. His calling is cut short. His panic diverts him for the sake of a short-term solution, which actually isn't any solution at all. And Samuel then says to him, now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. What do we do when it feels like God is late in our lives? We need to persist in prayer from a place of peace. Now, wow, that is easier said than done, but it's worth fighting for. The persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, she keeps coming back. Persistence is only persistence if we keep coming back beyond the point at which we would like to stop coming back. It's the same with patience. It will always take us to the space that we don't want to go. That's where we learn patience. That's where we are forced to be patient. Persistence in prayer might look like praying for healing again. It might look like asking God why, but it will not look like walking away. And as we persist in prayer from a place of peace and not panic, the good news for us is that we do not need to muster up the peace for ourselves, but actually Paul writes in Philippians about the peace of God, which is able to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we put everything before him in prayer. Let the peace of God do the job for you. Let it guard your heart and your mind. And thankfully, this peace is a peace which transcends our understanding. It is bigger and better than what I can understand for myself. If I disobey, if I go off peace when God feels delayed, then I am essentially saying it, like it or not, I'm saying in my heart that he has become basically like a divine vending machine. 
But if I can obey, if I can stay in obedience, even when it feels like he is delayed, then my life, my faithfulness will, God willing, testify to the lordship of Jesus for me. Okay, moving on to Joseph for a moment. Because unlike Saul, his calling isn't cut short, although it is a long time coming. He has a God-sized dream, and then he ends up stuck in circumstances which he does not deserve and which are beyond his control. He ends up in a dungeon. It's a great story. Read the whole thing, but we're just jumping to him in the dungeon for a little second. So he's in a dungeon. He doesn't deserve to be there. He interprets dreams for Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, and he says to him, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And then when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. So he's then remembered. It says, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. You put me in the chief baker in prison with a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he'd shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph was forgotten by man for two years. But his life-changing reputation is forged in that dungeon. And in stuck seasons, if we can grasp that what God is doing in our whole life, in life in general, is bigger than our individual dreams and destinies, and we, if we can be faithful in that place, then it will testify to his goodness, and it will also, our faithfulness will invest in our future as well. As we wait in stuck seasons, we need to hold on to our trust in the God who has not forgotten us. David writes in Psalm 56, he's crying out to God for help, and he writes about how God keeps a record of even his tears. He says, record my misery, list my tears on your scroll, are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this, I will know that God is for me. Despair sinks in when we feel that God is against us. If we are going to resist despair and keep contending for our dreams in prayer, then we're going to have to think of God rightly. We're going to have to know what side he is on in this. In Genesis 50, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. He knows where God was, what God was up to ultimately. He knows what side God was on, and so he did not despair. In the waiting, we need to trust that God hasn't forgotten us and we need to somehow live in his kindness in this space. So in Genesis 39, it says, while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all of those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. God's kindness in the waiting to us will be his presence, his favor, and then purpose for us in the meantime. Now, not to be overly dramatic, not like me, but no matter how successful our prayer life, we will be waiting forever. We will be waiting forever because not every person will be healed. Not every prayer will be answered. Not everything will be made right until Jesus comes back and makes everything right and new and good. So what do we do? Uh, we, I want to look at Paul just briefly, just to zoom in on him at the end of the book of Acts. How do we live in the meantime? So the sort of context here is briefly is that he received a vision that he would preach in Rome. He spends a lot of time wanting to get to Rome, trying to get to Rome. There's a shipwreck, there's a storm, he's a prisoner. Then he ends up in Rome at the end of the book and you're like, okay, hooray, happy ending, the end of his journey. Although it's not, but he ends up in Rome, but under house arrest in Rome. 
And like Joseph, he's undeserving of this fate. He appeals to the Jewish leaders, and Acts 28 says, he witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all those who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We see here that as we continue to wait on God or as answers are different to what we expected, whatever happens, bitterness isn't inevitable. It, boldness is possible. Bitterness isn't inevitable because sometimes all it takes for us to want to walk away is just for things to be different than what we expected. And lots of people don't walk away and they're waiting with a, a dramatic flourish. They just get bitter, maybe a little bit bitter or maybe a whole bit bitter. And it doesn't often actually come out like anger. It, it sort of simmers like apathy in us. When we have to wait on unfulfilled promises, when God feels late, when we feel stuck with the Holy Spirit in us, we can be content here. That is what we want to end on. We can be content here, even in this place. Paul writes in Philippians, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. I think that as you read through the story of Paul's life, you see that it's a secret learned over time, which is good news because it means that we can learn it as we wait. I've got some challenges for us today. Um, just have a wee think about this week. So are you waiting on something for God? Bring someone into the prayer battle with you. Now, I know that there are things in our life that we find easy to be like, hey, friend, hey, Bible read through, hey, mentor, pray for this for me. There are other things in our lives that feel more vulnerable or maybe things that God has spoken and you're like, but then what if he doesn't do it and I've told them and now they're in this with me and that's embarrassing. Resist those voices, resist shame where it doesn't belong and share it, don't keep it a secret so that in those moments when you're like facing a crossroads, someone can help you to keep contending, have them pray with you, for you. Are you feeling tempted to compromise? Do you feel frustrated at God's timing? Are you stuck and forgotten? Is that how you're feeling? Take time to be honest with God, maybe journal about it, recommit in your heart to being persistent in prayer from a place of peace, even if you don't feel like it yet. Read Psalm 143 then. Lay your needs and wants before God and then have a go at writing your own psalm in your waiting or just writing down your own prayer in your waiting. Um, I'm just going to pray for us and then hand back over to Brian. Yes, great. Okay, um, yeah, let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you that you did promise incredible things. You said incredible things about what life can look like because prayer works, because you hear us, because you move in response to our prayers would you raise our hopes, raise our expectations, God, where we are waiting, where we need to see you move? Would you help us to be filled with hope, filled with faith? But God, we also acknowledge right now that it is hard. It is hard to keep going. It's hard to persist in prayer when it feels like it's taking forever, when you feel late, when we feel stuck. God, would you have mercy on us in those spaces, Lord, for everyone right now who just knows in their heart what they are waiting to see you do, what they're desperate to see you do. God, would you move? Would you bring breakthrough? Would you bring it soon? Just bless everyone listening right now in the name of Jesus to see breakthrough soon in the areas that they are waiting on you from. God, move, break through, bring the answers. But Lord, as we are here, as we stand here, give us faith, give us hope, help us to keep going. Lord, use us, use our lives, use our stories. Don't let this be for nothing, but do something good in us as we wait on you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.